everyone. My name is Victor Bunya, and I am a protocol specialist over at Coinbase Cloud. Today, it's my pleasure to host a special conversation between Brian Armstrong, the co-founder and CEO of Coinbase, and Vitalik Buterin, the co-founder of Ethereum. We're going to be discussing a lot of really important industry topics from decentralization to the road to the merge to leadership, culture, privacy, and many other things. Goes without saying, there's no legal, financial, regulatory, policy, or even life advice being given during this conversation. So please sit back and enjoy. Thank you everybody for joining us. My name is Victor Bunyan and with me I have Vitalik Buterin and Brian Armstrong. Uh, normally these folks need no introduction, but I will go ahead and introduce them anyway. Uh, Vitalik is the co-founder of Ethereum. Ethereum is one of the largest and most decentralized smart contract platforms in the world, if not the largest. He has done a ton of stuff uh, around crypto for more than a decade now. He's been involved with Bitcoin before. Uh, now he's pushing the envelope on things like soulbound NFTs and you know other uh, other tracks. Brian uh, has also been in crypto for more than a decade. Um, did a lot of work on Bitcoin and Bitcoin wallets, and over time has built Coinbase, which, as you know and love, is the exchange, but also has a number of other components to it, such as uh, Prime and Wallet and Custody and Cloud and other services. And so these two folks are legends, and thank you guys so much for taking the time to join us on this podcast. Thanks, Victor. Thanks for joining me, Talek. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you guys too. We are going to dive into um, a couple of really interesting topics, some spicy, some philosophical. Um, there is a rough agenda for what we're going to be covering. So we are going to talk about the merge a little bit. Uh, although we're going to sidestep all these super basic concepts around it, and we're going to go right into some of the meat. Uh, we're going to talk a, lo a lot about decentralization, uh, what's next for the crypto ecosystem, philosophy, leadership. Uh, and at the end, we're going to have a party round. Uh, and that's going to be an opportunity for you guys to ask questions of each other, uh, taking turns, uh, for anything else that wasn't covered, but then it's top of mind for you. With that, I'll kick us off and just talk a little bit about the merge. So a lot has been said there, but... Um, you know, moving Ethereum to proof of stake has been discussed for years and years and years, um, and in some circles even before the uh, proof of work blockchain was even launched. Um, but one thing that I'm curious with both of you is whether there was a particular moment that stands out to you, you can recall that proof of stake like really made sense and made you believe that it's a viable path forward, even during the during a time when proof of work was so dominant in the industry. I think for, for me personally, like, I was never hostile to proof of stake. Uh, so if you look back to some of the articles that I wrote in uh, Bitcoin Magazine back in 2013, I uh, wrote one piece uh, about proof of stake, which uh, I remember was uh, theory friendly, though it also talked about how it's still a very new idea and there is uh, still a bunch of uh, problems that people are um, thinking about and trying to figure out. Um, and then in 2014, in uh, January, uh, one of the very first uh, posts on the Ethereum blog was about this uh, proposed algorithm called Slasher. And that was the one that introduced this concept of slashing where you get uh, penalized if you uh, vote for two things that contradict each other. And this was uh, my attempt at uh, trying to make in inroads at solving uh, what uh, proof of stake critics uh, called the nothing at stake problem like basically the problem that like in proof of work if he wants to build on top of two blocks you have to do double the work to build on top of each but in proof of stake you can just like, sign as many things as you want and sort of adding this explicit penalty uh, to signing more than one thing was the uh, solution for that so over the course of uh, 2014 I th we were doing a whole bunch of uh, research around seeing like just 
how far can we can this go? Like, what actually are the yeah, security assumptions that we have to rely on? Like, how uh, effective can we make this uh, slashing mechanism? Can we solve some of the other problems? Can we even make proof of stake actually be more secure than uh, proof of work? Uh, so, by having uh, slashing penalties eat into uh, deposits instead of just uh, eating into the rewards, uh, and uh, there was this post actually at the end of uh, 2014. Uh, where we talked about this concept of weak subjectivity, this notion that in a proof-of-stake network, unfortunately, you do have to make an assumption that in order to benefit from like the full security guarantees, a node has to log on uh, and be online at least once a while. And you can make that while pretty long. You can make it a week, you can make it a month, you can make it a year. Like the longer you make it, basically, the more inconvenient it is for stakers from a liquidity perspective. So there's a trade-off. But um, ironically enough for me, I think it was uh, realizing that that was the trade-off and that was an unavoidable trade-off that actually made me comfortable with it. Because uh, it made me realize that like, okay, this is the weakness. And at the same time, I felt confident that this is all that there is. Um, and like that certainty, that kind of realization that it's not an unknown anymore. And it is this like, very specific thing that we can understand philosophically. That was uh, this uh, like really big switch that uh, made me very comfortable with it because uh, you know, it's like instead of uh, jumping into a pond where you know you have no idea like what kinds of weird alien sharks are inside of it, it's like, you know, we finally put a robot submarine into the pond and we yeah, kind of catalog to these yeah, robot sharks a bit. And, uh, you know, we understand where they are, are, on the, are on the phylogenetic tree and what their DNA is. And, uh, you know, and like, even if they're still scary sharks, it's just, like, you know, we understand what the, pro um, what they are and we, and uh, we understand how to deal with the problems. And uh, we understand that like, actually it's not that, it's not nearly bad enough to kind of be fatal to the entire project. And that, like, that made me confident. And uh, from there on, the, the proof of stake research, of course, continued and there is years uh, uh, worth of stuff that followed, but it was uh, on uh, much more uh, kind of high level stuff like, um, you know, can we actually make proof of stake only yet? Like the security level depend on deposits instead of just rewards, right? Because if you can't, then the whole thing becomes like a hundred times uh, more secure or whatever. Uh, and so, even starting from 2015, like the difficulties were basically even already kind of self-imposed difficulties because we started setting really high standards for ourselves. That's a great way to give the overview. And I think that, you know, weak, weak subjectivity, which we're not going to cover in depth on this podcast, but it's actually kind of wild because the assumption it kind of makes is that human society will like continue working at like a super high level that like we will be able to agree on things. Uh, we will be able to come together as people at a high level. Um, but yeah, it's super, super fascinating trade-off. That's kind of like the layman's explanation of it. But uh, Brian, I want to kick it over to you. Super curious for your take. Yeah, well, I have to admit, I was actually skeptical of proof of stake when I first heard about it. Um, <laughs> and it took me probably, you know, a year or two to kind of come around. And, you know, when I first heard about it, my initial thought was the halting problem in computer science is kind of this, uh, it says that it, you can't really prove like, will this piece of code finish executing? And so, when, when we, people started talking about like a Turing complete language on a blockchain, I was like, this sounds so easy to, to defeat it and to attack it. And so I was initially just skeptical. Um, but I'd say after a couple of years, I really got proved wrong on that. And I started looking more into it. You know, I'd credit Fred Urson. I think he was watching a lot of this stuff closely and he pushed me to take another close look at it. Um, and just 
seeing Vitalik make progress on it and the apps that started to come out, I think we eventually came around to this idea at Coinbase. We're like, okay, you know what? We're going to have to be agnostic on every chain that's coming out, every token. We can't be sitting here like in our ivory tower only focused on one asset. Um, my initial hope actually in the early days of crypto was that Bitcoin was going to be the one chain. It was going to be like TCP IP or something and everything, all the apps, all that was going to get built on top of one chain. Because from a user, I was always thinking about it from a usability point of view. And it's just so much simpler for customers to come in. We had a hard enough time explaining them what even Bitcoin was. So it's like, now we have to explain like dozens of different blockchains and tokens. And I was like, oh, this is going to be so difficult. Couldn't they just put this all into one chain? We can kind of upgrade Bitcoin. But, you know, obviously that has its own risks. And there was a whole, whole controversy around that, which, you know, I won't get into. But uh, yeah, that, that caused us to move over and like start to just say, all right, we're going to have to support many things over time and be more agnostic. I think that's a great point. And I think that... Um you know, something like proof of stake. And, and honestly, like the question about Bitcoin proof of work was that either, either it makes sense that it works or it's a really dumb idea and it's going to go to zero. And so as the kind of confidence around proof of stake continues to increase and it's like, okay, maybe it's like not a dumb idea and it has the potential to work. And as soon as you're able to start building up some of that confidence, then you can kind of like carry it forward uh, and really play it out and start making different trade-offs around like what the design space looks like. One other thing I'll mention on that, I think there's a really nice relationship between like scientists and engineers in the world, you know, and I think of Vitalik as kind of like this brilliant computer scientist. And, you know, he's also many other things, philosopher, whatever. <laughs> but um, there's people out there who are just frankly, probably smarter than me that are like, you know, let me, all right, let's do the math proof. You know, let's write the new breakthrough idea on paper. And then I was never the person who was going to make that kind of math proof breakthrough or whatever, but I was always the person like, okay, if this looks promising, I can barely understand it. Let's go try to commercialize it and try to get you know, tens of millions of people using it. So I think that's a really important thing, by the way, in society broadly. It's like, how did, you know, there's a lot of ideas that exist in laboratories and science that just never get commercialized to actually benefit humanity. And when it does happen, awesome things happen. Like you get Genentech and SpaceX and Google and stuff like that, which all kind of came out of research organizations. So anyway, I feel very grateful in the world that there are people like Satoshi and Vitalik and all the people doing more on the, on the uh, scientific side so that engineer CEOs like me can kind of hopefully build companies around it. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit because that's a really interesting uh, thread that I'm going to pull. So, you know, I think that Coinbase, uh, you know, both gets a lot of credit and also some detractors for the amount of work that we've done to, as you mentioned, like commercialize and get it out there and onboard people and like really make a lot of this stuff usable. Um, and that always creates like a little bit of tension around you're saying this decentralized thing and, and you're centralizing parts of it, right? Or that we do as Coinbase in order to make it more accessible and usable and user-friendly and, and all that stuff. Uh, but there's like a natural tension there. And, you know, I'd be curious to get, you know, both of your takes, but also, you know, especially Vitalik's just on, you know, how you see that tension, you know, continue to evolve. Like, is there like a Puritan view there or is that tension always going to be there? We just have to do our best to navigate it. One of the ways that I yeah, I'm going to think think about it is that the yeah, crypto space in general um, tends to have this uh, like principles versus uh, expediency trade off um, like very deeply inside of it, and sometimes it even goes in cycles, right? Where like basically if things uh, kind of continue in a way that feels stable or even worse like feels bullish uh, for some amount of time, then uh, kind of people start get. Um, uh, I'm, you know, getting a bit more lax and the uh, expediency side starts kind of winning out over time. Um, but then eventually there's always some kind of event and it's always like some shock event uh, that makes people realize like, wait, um, you know, the principles in the space actually matter. Um, and uh, I mean, the most recent uh, big event for this um, actually is like a, a couple of months back, the uh, Terra Luna situation, right? Um, like, uh, 
I think uh, a lot of uh, kind of more principles oriented people felt like, um, you know, we were howling at the wind and like when we we're saying like, no, you know, this is not a new paradigm. Anything that offers 20% APRs is like definitely totally a scam. Um, and then, you know, you had all of these uh, kind of elite professional looking um, investment funds saying, you know, no, 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 this is, this is totally cool. Um, and, you know, it turns out that uh, they were very wrong. And uh, over the course of uh, about 96 hours, a lot of uh, people's opinions on a lot of things changed. Uh, so that's, so I think like that's uh, part of the reason why it's uh, important to kind of keep the uh, principles in mind, um, whether by principles of decentralization or privacy, um, or just, uh, you know, simple things like making sure your protocols are like, economically sound. Um, though I think there's also this uh, like other side of the trade-off where, um, like you know, you do have to kind of, like actually survive long enough, and you know you don't want to kind of go insolvent before the market becomes rational again. Um, and that's uh, yeah, yeah it, it's a hard trade-off. Um, I think it's uh, something that we yeah, grapple. Um, with internally, um, even uh, within the Ethereum project. I mean, I think uh, at, like the things that are closer to the base layer uh, tends to be things where it's more important to like be principled and uh, like be incredibly neutral and, and uh, you know, be decentralized and like be more um, uncompromising in those values because uh, like if the bottom layer breaks uh, or gets corrupted in some way, then like ultimately, um, you know, everything on top, built on top of that goes into the trash too. Um, and I do think that things that are built on top do have like more leeway, right? Uh, because uh, like ultimately the point of a startup is not to have a, uh, um, you know, 90% plus chance of surviving. The point of a startup is to have a 10% chance of being great instead of just a 1% chance of being great. Uh, and I think like that, like, you know, like that does lead to a different mindset, though at the same time, I do think that like as things in the ecosystem become systemically important, it does like start to make sense to like care about uh, some of those other things too. I agree. Decentralization is super important. That's like the original ethos of crypto. Occasionally these flare-ups happen and people get reminded of how important it is. And I think it's also important to note that like decentralization is a spectrum, right? So sometimes people like, especially early on, they'd say, oh, Coinbase is so centralized. And you know, if you buy in, if you buy your crypto and you store it with us, okay, it's being stored in one place. We built these things like, um, you know, Coinbase wallet, you can move it to self-custody. And so, um, and even if you're storing it with Coinbase, you know, it's still, it's, we're using open protocols, decentralized protocols. So you can, you can move it off of Coinbase to any other wallet or custodian whenever you want, right? And so um, that's much more decentralized than say, I don't know, like the Visa network where only one company controls that entire network as opposed to like, we don't control the Bitcoin network or Ethereum network, obviously. So anyway, more decentralization is generally better. Um, it does kind of slow down development. So there's always a balance. Like we're seeing that, that now with the, the move to web three and we're seeing a lot of apps that are being built kind of, I would call it web 2.5. Like, okay, they have a decentralized token, but all their stuff is not going on chain in IPFS or something like that. And so the tools are getting better and better to go more and more decentralized over time. I think that'll, hopefully that's the direction that things go, but you always have to be thoughtful about that. And, and because if, if you let it get, you know, too centralized, it'll get co-opted. And there's a great book called the master switch, which talks about the history of networks, like the telegram and radio and television and the internet. And they all follow this, this theme where they're initially super decentralized they eventually consolidate and then they get co-opted and then people have to move to the next network to get true freedom again. And so, you know, I think that's a little bit happening with the internet and it's a little bit at risk. 
crypto hopefully has, you know, 100 years or something before anything like that becomes a real threat. And maybe there'll be some other paradigm after that. But um, of course, the most recent issue of this was tornado cash. We could talk about that, too, because I, I do I do think it's kind of concerning um, some of the ether, Ethereum miners and things like that started seems to be like they just proactively started censoring transactions. So um, we can talk about that later, too. I don't think that we need to wait until later. I think, you know, people would love to hear you guys talk about it now. You know, I, I just want to, like, maybe point out uh, for just for the audience around, like, you know, the latest uh, Ethereum mine, I believe it was Ethermine that decided to start censoring. And like, what does the new, you know, ruling mean for validators? What does it mean for Ethereum? What does it mean for the merge and the transition? And so it's a huge and meaty topic. There's a lot to discuss there. So maybe like one of the ways in which I'll kick us off is, you know, Vitalik, a lot has been said around, you know, the transition from proof of work to proof of stake, around the transition from mining pools to validators. Um, and one of the questions I was raised is kind of like, okay, well, how does the transition impact Ethereum's censorship, uh, you know, properties, right? Like how decentralized is it? How resistant is it to control? And so one of the things I was hoping is that you could tell us a little bit about, you know, how does, uh, you know, the way that Ethereum is designed, um, you know, in, you know, this, you know, there's no ETH 2.0, right? But it's like the new combined network. Um, tell us a little bit about the design decisions and how they are uh, interacting with censorship, whether by enabling it or by making it more difficult to censor over an extended period of time. Mm, yeah, so I think uh, there's quite a few differences between uh, proof of uh, work Ethereum, or at least historical proof of work Ethereum and uh, proof of stake Ethereum. And it's kind of important to unpack a lot of those uh, differences because people like, you know, in the Twitter sphere or wherever else have often end up talking about things as a package deal. And, um, you know, they like, you know, you get people occasionally even saying things like, oh, um, you know, proof of stake is uh, bad because, um, you know, look at Ethereum's fast block times. And that's like, you know, no, 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 those are two separate issues. Um, but uh, so I think like the way that I would categorize the different issues are one, uh, proof of work versus proof of stake. Right, so this just has to do with like who is uh, res uh, responsible for kind uh, of creating blocks, building on top of other blocks, uh, forming consensus, um, and uh, doing all of those things. And and the differences uh, between the proof of work and proof of stake is basically you know in proof of work it's uh, miners who are these uh, kind of generally businesses uh, that uh, buy up large amounts of mining hardware, find someplace to run them with uh, cheap uh, electricity and uh, cheap operating costs and like storage and cooling and all of those things, um, and then they. Uh, just run the miners uh, 24-7 and, uh, you know, try to make a profit and, uh, you know, ho hopefully keep the network running at the same time. Uh, in uh, proof of stake, and sometimes I use the metaphor of virtual mining, where the idea is like you're putting in your coins and uh, you're sort of converting your coins into a virtual miner. And the uh, Ethereum network kind of simulates the process of mining in the sense of like randomly assigning uh, these uh, depositors the right to create a block. Um, so the, the, the practical differences are, I think, one is just who can do it. Um, so, I mean, my view, which tends, which is, you know, of course, vary on the uh, pro proof of stake side in like a bunch of dimensions. Um, you know, if you want to uh, hear the pro proof of work view, there's uh, plenty of uh, accounts with uh, with uh, words like HODL in their names that you can uh, consult for those views. But uh, my own view is uh, what I. Uh, there's a couple of uh, significant benefits uh, to the uh, proof of stake approach. Uh, one is uh, that it is more accessible to be a uh, participant, and it's even more censorship resistant to be a participant. 
because uh, like if you're a miner, you have to have a huge, uh, large amount of capital to make a mining farm. Uh, you uh, are have to be pretty significant in size. Um, these are things that are quite detectable. Um, you know, government has uh, plenty of experience sort of finding and uh, detecting large energy consumers um, in the context of uh, wanting to arrest people growing the wrong kind of plants from time to time. Uh, so this is uh, the, the sort of thing that's like findable, whereas in proof of stake, like all you need is just a computer somewhere with an internet connection somewhere. And uh, that's just like, much easier to uh, censorship resist. It's much easier to uh, just hop uh, jurisdictions even at a moment's notice if you feel under threat. It's uh, like much smaller, more nimble. More people can do it because of the lower capital requirements. Uh, so those are kind of my arguments for proof of uh, stake over proof of work in general. But then there's also two, two other issues that our people are talking about at the same time, right? So. One of those issues is um, the uh, chain-based versus uh, attestations, right? Uh, so like in consensus algorithms in uh, crypto, there's uh, this kind of spectrum where either you can be chain-based, which basically says you have like one block per period and you need to wait lots of blocks uh, before you like really have a strong consensus on any particular block, right? So this is how Bitcoin works. So you get one block on average every 10 minutes and you wait 10 minutes, you get another block. You have to wait six confirmations in Ethereum, it goes down to 13 seconds, but it's like still kind of similar. But then the opposite extreme is like Tendermint style, where literally every validator uh, has to vote um, at the same time. And so you basically have your entire validator set supporting a block after only a few seconds. Ethereum takes this middle ground between the two. Um, where we uh, like we have lots of uh, attesters uh, like kind of signing off on blocks in parallel, and but at the at the same time like that 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 attestation is staggered over some period of time, so it takes like about ten minutes for a block to finalize. But to be fair, I think uh, like the latest thinking in the research team is that we want to move to what we call a single slot finality. So we actually do want to uh, kind of become more ten uh, more tendermint like over time, right? But in the middle, Ethereum is this compromise, and we have lots of this parallelization. And then there is this issue of like, is there some meaningful difference between building a block, which is like voting for the chain at the same time as uh, creating new transactions, versus kind of proposing and attesting separately, right? Where you have these like two separate roles where one of those roles is creating a block and another one of those roles is uh, basically voting on uh, which block is the right block. And like people argue about like, are these two things actually different? I mean, my view, my view is from like that, that, that point of view, like the censorship resistance point of view, probably not because, uh, you know, building a block on top of a block is ultimately still voting for a block. Attesting to a block is, uh, is still voting for that block. Uh, but, you know, this is something that people will argue. The uh, third is issue, and this is the one where I think like there is more, uh, there is quite a bit, uh, a bit of like legitimate cause for concern is the kind of MEV proposer builder stuff that people have been talking about recently. Uh, so the idea here basically is that on Ethereum, there are a bunch of uh, applications uh, that like create what we call MEV, which basically, and MEV basically means like opportunities to extract revenue by doing really clever things to like stick your transaction in front of other transactions or reorder other people's transactions, right? So like opportunities for miners or for block producers to get even more revenue by being really clever about how they produce their blocks instead of just using stock software. Uh, and 
Now, this is uh, an issue where like Ethereum has lots of MEV and Bitcoin has very little. And so like, I think you can argue it as a point in uh, Bitcoin's favor, um, actually. But uh, like it's basically a consequence of the uh, greater array of applications that uh, Ethereum enables. And um, you know, Bitcoin people argue like, see, this is exactly why it wants to have greater separation between your money and your application layer. But so like I, I do admit this is a point in favor of that viewpoint, but it's also kind of separate from proof of work versus proof of stake, right? So, you know, as a kind of philosopher, I think it's uh, important to sort of like distinguish between those issues and argue at the level of concepts instead of at the level of, um, you know, packaged products. Um, but uh, that so there like in the Ethereum community, there is this discourse about how do we like mitigate this problem? Um, and one of the ideas that has developed is this concept of proposer builder separation, where basically you separate out the role of being a validator from the role of creating blocks. And you allow the role of like creating blocks and like actually choosing what goes into blocks to become more professionalized. And then you have an auction mechanism where if you get assigned the right to create a block, you just listen to the auction, you get a bunch of bids, and you take the bid that has the, uh, uh, you take the highest bid, and like you use a sort of protocol, you agree with them, and they, uh, and, uh, they provide the block, and uh, that block is kind of put into place, and uh, you get uh, whatever the payment is, right? So the uh, nice thing about this is that it, it does kind of separate out the uh, block, uh, the, the role of being a validator into this role that continues to be this kind of very dummy automaton function where you just run completely automated software and you don't think about it from this role where you actually choose what the block contents are. Um, and this does mitigate the centralization issue, but people have raised the concern of like, well, what if, um, you know, build like a one or a couple of builders become so much better be, um, than the rest of the builders that they start producing all the blocks and this also becomes a censorship risk. And there are strategies for mitigating this, um, right? So like there is this concept of partial block auctions where instead of the builder uh, constructing the entire block, the builder just constructs most of the block. And then if they missed any transactions, the uh, validator can still add a couple, uh, um, a couple of more transactions. But like this is still a research area, right? And I do think that, you know, there's definitely fair cause for, uh, for concern in figuring out like exactly kind of how um, like how much we can do to like make uh, that side of the stack more resilient. Um, but it's, uh, I mean, I think the good news is that it's uh, like in order for this mechanism to start censoring, basically all the blocks have to be censoring, right? Like if even 10% of the blocks are not censoring, then you just have to wait 10 slots until you come uh, until you find a block that is, um, that is um, willing to include whatever, right? So that's the good news. But at the same time, I think it's also important to not be complacent. And uh, it is like, like I believe in trying to kind of, uh, you know, like try like many different uh, strategies at the same time and uh, not rely too much on one. Um, and so I think this kind of discourse about can we kind of make the the ecosystem more robust and uh, can we yeah, kind of make a, a staking ecosystem that's more robust and make a staking ecosystem where as few um, stakers as possible are censoring transactions like that's also an important discussion to have um, but and it, like it's an important effort to make but this, but it is you know something that requires effort right I think it's important to remember that you know in both like neither in ethereum nor in uh, Bitcoin nor any um, other system like 
are we just kind of guaranteed that the outcomes we want happen automatically, right? I think, uh, you know, even in the kind of the system, the, the systems that try the hardest to sort of call themselves uh, fully automated, there's uh, definitely still like some, uh, some level of uh, community coordination that's uh, required to make sure that those things actually happen. Right, right, right. And I, I think those are all great points. Um, there are a couple of things that I would just pull out from that um, that I really like that you said. I think, you know, the first thing is that just, you know, not that it's impossible, but it is practically impossible um, to consistently be able to censor, um, you know, on Ethereum today or like, you know, with, with proof of stake. Um, you know, I, I think I think one of the things there that's kind of like um, re really interesting is that it, you know, the amount of coordination that you need across all the different validators um, to consistently perform this activity is like really significant, um, you know, to, to the point where it's not really feasible. But I think the next step beyond that, uh, you know, beyond technical reasons, which is that, you know, it, this is one of the most important properties of, you know, any chain out there, if not the most important, right? The, the ability for the infrastructure to be incredibly neutral and decentralized. And so when you talk about like protocol roadmaps, you know, there's a bunch of features that, that we want, right? Like we want for L2s to have cheaper transactions, right? And so there's like an EIP that's pushing that forward. We want all kinds of stuff to happen around sharding, right? So there's EIPs that are pushing that forward. Um, but in terms of like, you know, pushing forward work and prioritizing work that keeps a network decentralized um, incredible, and, and that enables validators to remain incredibly neutral, you know, that work is always going to be prioritized ahead of everything else in order to protect the like most important property of these chains that like allow them to you know, have their value and provide their use and like, you know, help be helpful to the world. I I would be very, very curious to hear Brian's take. It's such a big topic. And so maybe I won't even give a prompt. Brian, just take us away. What's been top of mind for you on this topic? You know, there may be a world where even if only 10% of the validators or something like that are still um, operating without censorship, it'll eventually go through or something unless, unless it gets to a world where it's like, you know, they won't even, nobody will even build on top of a, a block that contained a transaction that wasn't supposed to be there or whatever in their mind, right? So I think this is actually a very, you know, important moment in the history of blockchains where we need to look very closely from a policy point of view, from a community point of view, and make sure the right decisions are being made. You know, I'm, I'm pretty concerned about um, these mining pools like, you know, Ethermine is an example that you mentioned earlier, Victor, that came out. And, I, I, you know, I haven't validated this myself, but it appears that uh, they are censoring some transactions that... Um, were kind of labeled in this recent tornado cash issue. But if, you know, also there's a, my understanding is that this is the first time in the history of OFAC they've actually put a technology, um, a smart contract address on a sanction list. And it, it may, this is something the lawyers are looking into at various organizations around the world, CCI, you know, EFF, Coin Center are all looking at this and saying, actually, is that within the statutory authority of OFAC to sanction a technology? I think they may only be, given the power by Congress to sanction a person or, a pro or, some, or some piece of property or something like that and not a technology. So my guess is there's gonna be a court case on that that'll challenge it that has a pretty high success, successful chance of, of winning is my guess. But let's say even if you put all that aside, you don't think that that's gonna work or you just in some abundance of caution, you wanna you know, make sure you don't do it. I think it's potentially risking um, the bigger thing that we're all trying to do here. And my personal opinion is that if any, any mining pool or validator who does not take um, the actions that are in line with the participants there, like, you know, people participating in that mining pool, they should leave that mining pool. I, I think it's, it's a vote of no confidence uh, for people to leave those. And it's a way for the, the community to really say, hey, we're all here about building a technology that truly is decentralized and global. And it's not, it's not uh, 
captured by any, you know, one particular country or something. It's like, you know, North Korea has a private internet. Like we don't want to be on the private internet of North Korea. We want to be on the global internet, right? Or China heavily filters the internet. We want in America and the free world, various places around the world, you know, most of the countries, we want to be on an open internet. That's what's driven all of this innovation. And yes, occasionally a bad person, you know, uses the internet or something like that. just like they occasionally use cryptocurrency, but go prosecute the bad person. Don't prosecute the technology. So that's kind of what I want to stand for. And I put out a tweet related to that. Um, Coinbase is involved in this too. I mean, we're a large validator of Ethereum. And so if some, we would probably put out a legal challenge or something like that before it ever became a major issue. But if it ever really came down to it, I think we would, you know, minimize our, our Ethereum 2 uh, validation um, or even in the worst case, eliminate it if, if it meant preserving the integrity of the overall network. So um, Vitalik, I don't know if you, if you have an opinion on it or you want to jump in, but um, yeah, those are my thoughts. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, no, definitely and uh, excellent uh, comments all around. I think I uh, I agree with all parts of it. I, and I think, uh, yeah, like, obviously, I'm uh, you know, fully supportive of uh, people's need to uh, comply with the uh, regulators in, uh, in whatever jurisdiction that they're in. Um, but if uh, it, like, in whatever jurisdiction you're in, it happens to be uh, impossible to like, simultaneously do that and uh, simultaneously, um, like, be a yeah, good citizen of the Ethereum network, then the honorable thing to do is to shut down. Um, but I think um, also it's a very correct uh, comment that from a purely legal standpoint, as far as um, I can tell, you know, we're, we are very far from uh, that point. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's great that there are, you know, people like Coin Center and um, all of these organizations like uh, making this really active effort to make sure that, um, you know, even from like that we that uh, we do actually kind of get a, a, um, a fair shot there. Um, one other thing I think that's important to keep in mind also is that, like, I personally don't think that the uh, crypto ecosystem's response as a whole should be like 100% one of uh, resistance. Uh, so like, I think resistance in, um, in the sense of like having uh, red lines and, uh, you know, and, ultimately, you know, standing up for blockchain's uh, right to exist and uh, be the thing that they've uh, been advertised as being for day one is um, important and indispensable. But at the same time, um, you know, goals like, say, uh, not wanting to give hackers uh, multi-billion dollar anonymity sets, like that's a reasonable goal. And I think that's a goal that even a lot of people in the crypto community share. Um, and I think, um, you know, that like in general, the yeah, crypto space um, has been talking about uh, kind of regulation at the edges from the beginning. Um, and I do think that we should be kind of proactive in like actually trying to come up with ways at the edges to like uh, build applications that kind of maximize benefits and uh, minimize risks. And I actually think that people don't realize the uh, extent to which it, it actually is possible to do that without uh, turning the uh, blockchain space into like some uh, this you know dystopian surveillance like hellscape that the uh, community doesn't want right um so like just to get into this a bit um the like one simple thing that you can do right is uh, you can create a like say tornado cash like mixer uh, where when you withdraw in, uh, in addition to just making a zero knowledge proof that proves that like you ha you have a valid deposit and that your valid deposit wasn't spent yet, you could also make a zero knowledge proof that says 
this withdrawal is is not part of like one of this set of deposits, or this withdrawal is part of one of this subset of deposits. So you would not reveal exactly who who you are. You would not even reveal exactly who you are to like one specific group. So like it's this is not like one of those uh, backdoor key type of proposals, right? But what you would be doing is you would be saying like I am some participants in this ecosystem, but I like I am not a hacker. Right. And what this also, this is kind of actually incentive compatible, right? Because if you add one of these proofs, then like in theory, this should make your life hard, uh, easier from a uh, compliance point of view with whatever you do with those coins uh, down the line, because whoever's interacting with you in the future, they can know that like they're like, they know that they're getting coins where the, like the hacker isn't part of the pool. Um, and so they don't have to worry about you being the hacker as much. Um, and also it, like by taking the hacker out of your anonymity set, you're also taking yourself out of the hacker's anonymity set, right? And so if this uh, like you know, turns into something that's a default, then like the uh, anonymity set that hackers have would just suddenly become really tiny, right? And instead of uh, them being able to like safely, um, you know, kind of steal and uh, like mix like some number, like let's say $5 million, it might go down to like say $50,000 or, uh, or potentially even less, right? Uh, so I think there's this uh, large design space of uh, this kind of moderate stuff that like really takes advantage of the power of uh, zero knowledge proof technology to give uh, privacy and uh, security uh, and uh, assurances and guarantees of different kinds at the same time. Um, and I, like this is, I think, uh, something that a lot of uh, people uh, in the like in the space have kind of been excited about and uh, understood could be possible for a long time. And I think there is actually an opportunity to kind of build um, on top of that vision and like actually present, uh, like use the crypto space as an opportunity to uh, kind of present to the world of like you know, hey, here is how we actually can um, you know have very strong financial privacy, you know, without needing backdoors uh, or, and uh, like agencies having secret keys that also at the same time, like allows people to prove that, like, you know, they are basically not a bad guy and um, allows them to uh, avoid contributing to like actual, um, actual bad guys kind of having um, large anonymity sets that makes it uh, easier for them to kind of, um, you know, hide who they are. Um, so, like I think um, it's important for us to do do those kinds of things as well. Um, it's uh, like I think especially yeah, like this is a, an issue. This is something that I think exists like in American culture, but kind of in crypto culture, um, it exists kind of more strongly, uh, even more strongly. Kind of this idea that like it's more honorable and brave to sort of sail directly downwind against the wind. Um, but I actually think that you know there are times when that's. Uh, a yeah, counterproductive strategy. And uh, there's times where you kind of, if you do that, you needlessly sacrifice your um, opportunity to win friends. Um, and so, you know, I also kind of want to sort of appeal to the yeah, crypto uh, community to kind of think about that side, um, that side of things uh, at the same time. And, uh, you know, so we can do everything that we need to do to continue to ensure the, yeah, you know, integrity and kind of basic function of the chain. Um, and at the same time, ensure like use those as well to like build an uh, ecosystem that kind of helps uh, create a world that you know everyone like both the uh, crypto community and the uh, rest of the world uh, that uh, we wants to win over wants to live in. Yeah, I think those are all such great points, and um, you know, for me, they strike close to heart because my wife uh, Lisa, she's actually head of business development at Aztec, which is the privacy layer two on Ethereum, and so like. 
you know, as a family, we, we're very invested in, uh, you know, in making sure that privacy, um, you know, sticks around and is viable and, and continues to, you know, support the users of Ethereum. Um, it's really, really important, I think, for everybody because, you know, without privacy, all that we're building is kind of like the most, you know, per, you know most perfect uh, financial surveillance uh, apparatus uh, the world's ever seen because everything's public. Um, you know, but pri privacy is such a, it's such a meaty topic and, um, you know, we all think that it's important, but I think like one thing that I'd love to ask you guys is um, of all the different ways in which privacy can be expressed or, or felt or used, um, I think the question that's on my mind and on the minds of many people is kind of like, you know, what what is that use case where, you know, it's, it's super important to get right and that we feel it's like, okay, maybe this is the one that, you know, we start out with get regulators and users comfortable with as like something that we can all agree on a happy balance on. And like make that the first the first shot towards like the eventual goal of like having sufficient privacy for everything that we want to do. You know, it's funny. I think privacy coins sometimes have a little bit of a bad name, but they really shouldn't. I mean, I think privacy of of people's financial data is like some of the most important data that they'd want to have privacy around. And it it always kind of boggles my mind how you know people are very up in arms about other kinds of privacy, like cookies are tracking them. You know, they're tracking you across like. Uh, on social media and they can like show you ads based on that. And people are super bent out of shape about this. Right. And then it's like, well, do you realize that every time you, you know, swipe your credit card, it's like ending up in all these databases of all these different companies around the world. And, you know, why is that? Like, it's your money. You should, you, you know, you should pay your taxes obviously. And like, I understand that it's, it's a useful tool. Like if, if some, if law enforcement, you know, gets a subpoena or something like that. They want to, they have, they've met some reasonable threshold of like, um, you know, looking, getting this data, they want to use it as a tool of law enforcement to track down where the money went and stuff like that. But for the average person, they have almost zero privacy around their, their financial data. And I think that's a huge, it's a huge risk in society. So, you know, it's, it's kind of similar to the early days of the internet when everything was HTTP and the people were starting to do online shopping and they were putting their credit cards in and it was just going over the wire in plain text. And the world moved to HTTPS, you know, with the lock icon. And it's like, that should be the default, I think, in, in crypto as well. There are instances where you'd want to have every transaction be public. Like, for instance, if you're a charity, you want full auditability of anybody in the world, like, you know, where the money is coming from and where it's going. Like, that would be a cool paper trail to just do as, as a nonprofit or something. But if you're a private company, if you're a private citizen, like I think most people in the world would probably want to have by default private. So I, I think it'd be great to see, you know, maybe some of these layer twos, like you were saying, Victor, like Aztec, or I don't know, others. Like my one thought I had on this is if you, if you make a blockchain where everything is private, and that's the only option, you know, the default is like people are going to come in and use it for nefarious stuff because it's just like the only option that they have. But if you make a privacy, a variable that can be flipped on or off, right? where it's like, you know, you, if you want it, you add it, it's probably a little bit more expensive in terms of gas, just like HTTPS has a couple of extra handshakes that happen, slows down the internet connection. Um, you know, then anybody can start to add it in. And so now you have a, a, dual, a dual use L2 or chain or whatever, that's like, there's clearly a legitimate use and there's clearly a lot of legitimate use in privacy, but there may be something there that people, law enforcement has an issue with. And so, you know, a view key is like one way people have described this, right, in other blockchains. I think that's, a, that's an interesting way to sort of leg into this, where over time, a greater and greater percentage of all transactions in crypto should probably be private. Um, and it's a little bit like, you know, like if someone were to make a telephone network where 90% of all the activity was for illicit purposes, it, that telephone network would probably get shut down. But if, it, if it's like 1% or 5% or 10% of it is 
you know, we don't really know. The U.S. dollar in cash is like 4% apparently illicit activity, but it doesn't get shut down. So as long as it's like predominantly being used for legitimate purposes, anything that um, could be used by a bad person is not overall going to get shut down. And so I think blockchains need to add more and more of that privacy capability. And the predominant, you know, 99 of 100 people in the world are good. They're going to be using it for legitimate purposes. And law enforcement will develop tools to go after bad, bad folks um, that don't rely on, you know, having complete transparency into every transaction in the entire economy. Yeah, super, super fascinating. I actually, I, I kind of wonder because I feel like when I talk to some folks that are working on privacy, a lot of them think that privacy by default is the right approach. Um, and then, you know, you can optionally make things viewable from there. Um, I am not an expert on privacy, but I know that Vitalik spent a lot of time thinking about it. So maybe I'll pass it over to you. I'd be super curious to get your take. I mean, I think the like the bigger reason why Ethereum, like for example, has not done privacy by default, so like it, it doesn't have to do with kind of like politics of different styles of privacy or things like that. It's more technical, which is that uh, Ethereum's uh, kind of philosophy has always been that uh, we are a general purpose network and Ethereum does the uh, minimum that uh, has to be done in order for general purpose stuff on top of it to be possible. And Ethereum doesn't want to provide a specific functionality uh, to do some of these more complicated features because, well, you know, maybe there are different ways to do those more complicated features, or maybe the uh, trade-offs among in doing those more complicated features uh, just evolve too quickly over time, and uh, we don't want a uh, kind of the, the desire to adapt to ongoing needs to like be something that pushes uh, puts pressure on governance and like requires governance to be. Uh, more activist than it needs to be, right? So, like, just more uh, kind of technical concerns like that have been the the reason why, like, in Ethereum, we just say, like, hey, you know, we have a programming language and uh, everything else is up to you. Um, and, I mean, even, like, if you look at account abstraction, for example, right, this is the idea that instead of, like, your wallet being... Uh, uh, being controllable by just a private key, you could have your wallet be controlled by a smart contract. So you could have lots of private keys, you could have changeable private keys, you could do different things. That's something that like we tried to do EITs for um, near the beginning, but the most successful approach right now, uh, ERC-4337 is like an extra protocol thing. And that was just like a necessary compromise because the core developers are so busy that they have their hands completely full getting uh, just very general purpose stuff done uh, that it's uh, hard, like that we just want the account abstraction piece to be a kind of doable by this uh, separate community. And actually like after about six months of uh, some uh, really hard work by, um, you know, people like Yoav Weiss and uh, the uh, Ethan Infinitism team um, and uh, some like people from Nevermind and a couple of others, there's this growing ERC4337 fan club and this kind of separate development community that's uh, doing all of this completely in parallel to the Ethereum core development effort, right? Um, which is like, a huge win for kind of scalability, right? Because, uh, you know, managing 10 teams that don't have to coordinate with each other is um, a lot easier than managing 10 teams that do have to coordinate with each other, right? Because in the first case, like you don't even have to manage most of the teams, they just do stuff. Uh, so that, um, and I, like for privacy, it's similar. Um, like there are different approaches to privacy, right? So there's uh, the question of, uh, you know, are we talking about privacy of coins? Are we talking about like tokens? Are we trying to create like privacy for more general purpose applications? The problem with that general purpose applications is that the, there's like a different models and it's not obvious that there's any best model. 
the reason for this is uh, that like if you want to, if you're doing privacy with uh, zero, zero knowledge proofs, which is the technology that we have, right? Then what you have there's this uh, very fundamental limitation that in order to be able to interact with a particular piece of state, you have to have the decryption key to that piece of state, right? So if you have the decryption key, it's a something you can you can do stuff with. If you don't have the decryption key to something, you cannot do stuff with it, and that's like a very uh, different from the Ethereum model, right? Because the Ethereum model basically says you can make transactions that interact with an unlimited number of, of uh, accounts and users without their consent, right? Like from a purely technical point of view, like if I send you, um, let's say 50, um, you know, USDC tokens, I'm modifying a state entry, which is your USDC balance, and I'm increasing it by 50, and that operation is happening without your consent. Now. It's not now getting 50 USDC is not something that you know any reasonable person would refuse, right? But from a technical point of view, like it's a number that's associated with your money, and I'm making that number go up without consulting you first. With zero knowledge proofs, that's not something that really can be done, right? And so this is why like all the zero knowledge proof things rely on a UTXO model, right? It's it's like I'm creating an entirely new account and I can see that account and I'm giving it 50 coins. And then, you know, if you want to, you can like grab those coins and you could do, uh, and it's up to you to you know, like do other things with those coins later, um, right? So the, like, so just to kind of step back there, right? Like I think the idea is that once you add privacy, if a lot of things become much more application specific and there's 10 different ways to do it and it's not obvious today, it might not ever be possible that one day of, one way of doing privacy is better than like every other way of doing privacy. Um, and then in terms of like which um, use cases for privacy we should uh, kind of like showcase, I think uh, my general view on this is that like ultimately any privacy on blockchains relies on at least some degree of financial privacy. And that's just true for a very boring reason, which is transaction fees, right? Um, so like about a week ago, I published this uh, post on ETH research where I talked about how we should add stealth, uh, stealth address uh, functionality to Ethereum. So like if I want to send uh, you some an NFT and like, um, what are you, Brian? Are you Brian.eth? Like, what, is, is there some .eth that you have? Yeah, brmstrong.eth. Brmstrong, right. So the idea would be that like, I could send an NFT to an address that I generate locally where I know that this address can be controlled by, by uh, uh, whoever controls brmstrong.eth. And you, as as the controller of Armstrong that ETH, would be able to kind of do a scan and, and find that address, but no one else would know that I sent to an account that's uh, controlled by Armstrong ETH, right? So, like, we'd be able to at least uh, transfer NFTs around without, um, you know, a log of like every person's activity being kind of like tieable to everything else. And like, I think this is uh, clearly good, and we should do it. But if you want to make it work really well you have to like figure out transaction fees somehow, right? Because it's like, I'm sending you an NFT, but then, okay, if you want to send that NFT along to someone else, then you have to pay, uh, find some ETH to pay the transaction fees. And like, one thing we could do is like, I send the NFT along with 0.01 ETH, and then you would like, use some of that ETH to pay gas and then pass along 0.009, whatever ETH to someone else. But then eventually you hit zero, and then that person has to kind of like add more ETH somehow. And so like there's, just because of transaction fees, there is this uh, kind of need for like small scale financial privacy of us of some kind uh, to be there somehow. Um, and I think the interesting thing with financial privacy is that I pretty much everyone agrees that small scale financial privacy is like more obviously good. 
right? Like I think even it might be like either Rohan Gray or like one of these uh, people who is very cryptocurrency skeptical and like he wants to have a yeah, government run CBDC. I think even he said at one point so that uh, he'd be uh, okay having a uh, so, like some kind of currency that gives people strong privacy up to like some number of dollars per month, right? Uh, so like it's like the small the smaller the scale, um, the uh, more uh, like the more obviously good the uh, privacy is. And one of the I think like fortunate coincidences that we have, right, is that smaller scale financial privacy is easier to achieve, right? Because uh, like financial privacy depends on your ability to have an anonymity set. And if you're a really big actor, then like it'll, it just takes a very long time for you to uh, find an anonymity set that's large enough. And if you're a small actor, then like there's a huge number of actors that are like you. And so uh, getting an anonymity set that's big enough for yourself is uh, well, just a much easier task, right? So I think it's uh, so, like, it is something that will um, happen naturally. I mean, I think uh, there, there's definitely like good ways of uh, achieving a kind of privacy for those uh, use cases in particular, like both I mean, you know, small scale finance and uh, transaction fee payments uh, that work really well. Uh, but you know, this is just something that more people in the ecosystem needs to be more actively uh, working on and developing. So, okay, let me, let me ask you guys, which direction do you wanna take this in? Because I think that we can still talk a little bit about use cases. We've talked about some already. Um, we can also talk about a little bit about regulation. Or um, I was thinking that we could go on through to some of the philosophical leadership questions, especially some of the fun ones that people have asked on Twitter. I, I like the idea of doing a lightning round where we just do rapid fire from Twitter or with each other or something like that. Yeah, so I, I'll i do the first and maybe like two or three rounds with you because there were some really good questions that came from, from Twitter. Um, and then, you know, you guys will just go back and forth from there. So the first one is, uh, what is your kind of like furthest out but most deeply held belief about how crypto will change our society? Um, and I, I, I have my answer, which is that I actually think that uh, if everybody adopts like Bitcoin or ETH or some other kind of like money standard, it'll be harder to wage large scale wars because you can't finance it through inflation. You can only finance through debt. And there's like a much more finite amount of debt that you can take on compared to how much inflation you can take on. Um, so that's my like furthest out but deeply held do you guys have any? One of mine is that I think um, in order for like crypto to really start kind of executing on the uh, broader visions that people have uh, around crypto, crypto needs to start being not just crypto. Like I think crypto is a really important building block and it's uh, amazing that we have it. But I think we also like actually need to have organized efforts to achieve the like really specific things that we want to achieve right so i um, mean you know, if uh, the goal is financial freedom for like people in low-income countries then like you know people including maybe you as a listener should like actively work in and uh, in making happen the specific goal of uh, making it easier to use uh, crypto to like store make uh, it easier to move money around in low-income countries i um, mean you know if uh, you want to have a uh, you know network states organized around like particular governance experiments or particular social values then like you need to actually go and start building the thing um if uh, you know, your goal is to, uh, like, we want more um, non-financial applications, so we want to start building a better identity stack, like, you need to actually start building the, the identity stack, right? So, like, if you care about a thing, build the thing, and uh, don't assume that uh, crypto being successful will make the thing appear, uh, just magically appear automatically. You know, the first thing you made me think of, Victor, is, like, there's that great website, I think it's called WTF Happened in 1971, and um, it sort of just makes the point that uh, coming off the gold standard, like, the U.S., 
all kinds of things went in a different direction. And so in a, in a way, I guess if you have like this new global economy that has a new global, a new gold standard with Bitcoin, um, in what ways might we return to that? You know, maybe we'll be more ambitious. Maybe we'll be more optimistic about the future. Maybe we'll build more stuff like we did with the Hoover Dam and the space program and all this stuff. Um, at least in this new, you know, society, this network state or whatever, you know, it ends up being, so I think that would be super cool. And the other thing is like, if money was actually, you know, payments were literally frictionless, um, I do think you'd start to see that happen, affect society in a variety of ways. Like, you know, AI would probably start using it in the metaverse. You'd start using it for a lot of like really low friction, small things like, or the one funny example I always heard was like, if you had two self-driving cars on the freeway and you want to pass that car, you could basically do a microtransaction and it'll pull over and you move ahead, you know? And so there might be like lots of little um, optimization problems that get solved all in society. If payments were truly frictionless, like, like a like sending a WhatsApp message or something like that. What do you think about um, decentralized staking services? Do those have a role to play in censorship resistance? I've been reading about some of those more recently with all the tornado cash stuff, but what's the state of those? Are you excited about them? Do you think that's part of the solution? I'm definitely excited about them. I uh, definitely think that they're important. Um, I'm like hesitant to have 100% enthusiasm for them in the sense that like if Lido has like 60% uh, market share, but like Lido is looks decentralized between 100 validators internally, like I'm, I, I don't value that as being equivalent to 100 homestakers, for example. And the reason is that like any of these kind of second layer systems that people create, they uh, seem to so far have like some kind of need for their own internal governance and. Like I've written a lot about how crypto governance, like so far, we uh, don't have, you know, there's fundamental kind of economic weaknesses in the uh, governance that we've seen so far. We don't know how to fix those uh, problems well. And it's uh, like what, whatever governance you create may well end up being a, a security hole for like, going after all of those uh, validators at the same time. So that's like the source of my kind of not quite 100% enthusiasm. But at the same time, I think, um, you know, 20% being controlled by a decentralized staking service is far better than 20% uh, being uh, controlled by a single operator. So definitely hope that we uh, move more in that direction. And actually, I have a, I have a mandatory shell and that we do have a lighter competitor called Alluvial um, that you know, is contributing to. Um, so we still, we hope to see a lot more competition in that space overall, so that at least, you know, you have a number of different solutions that are all affecting the service. But uh, Vitalik, what, uh, what questions do you have for Brian? Yeah, um, actually, yeah, kind of continuing off on the yeah, answer that I gave a few minutes back, I think uh, my question to Brian would be, what is like something about the world that uh, you that like you care about and are even actively trying to accomplish um, other than uh, crypto and um, you know what are what what are the things that you're doing to make it happen you know one one thing i'm really passionate about is just sort of what we touched on earlier how do you get more scientific research happening in the world and how do you get that translated into companies that actually create products for people because um you know i kind of feel like what is the root of all progress in civilization and everything it's basically like you have to have better technology and better innovation and that leads to better products. But where does that come from? It comes from like people having good education. It comes from like the right laws and free markets and like structures in place where people try more things and, and do cool stuff. So I don't know. One of the things I'm passionate about is that um, like a lot of scientific research to me, it seems kind of a little inefficient in the way that like peer review happens in journals and um 
you know, how funding works for it. And so I, I, COVID sort of fixed some of this in a way because you saw people were just like, it was, it was like warp, warp speed or whatever. Like, all right, you, you did the research, put it on Twitter. Don't, don't forget about submitting it to a journal and waiting a year, you know, and like get, get the peer reviews right away. And then like, see if someone can replicate it. Like, how do we get it into, into a vaccine? Like that kind of stuff should be there all the time. And crypto and computer science has almost showed, I think a world that is possible here where like, look how open source software works, you know, like why isn't all science done more like open source software where, you know, you do your first commit and you, boom, you put it out to the world. You're doing work in progress. Maybe somebody submits a random pull request, but most of these labs around the world are doing this work in a silo because they're, they're very secretive and like, you know, it's, it's government funding and it's all about status and prestige and citations and stuff. So anyway, I, I feel like, scientific research could be more like open source software. And um, a lot of crypto people are getting into longevity funding as too. I know that you are as well, Vitalik. So I think that's super, it's really cool how like this software golden age that happened and crypto golden age is now trickling down into other hard science problems, um, which I think will be really good for team human. There's maybe like a couple of years ago now that they did a study based on cryptography found, uh, funding. And then, and you know, even that just gone up like 10 or 20 X or something like that. And so, you're seeing like the fields that are super close to us, like skyrocket. And then like, as more and more time passes, like more and more of that funding continues to flow into other fields that are, you know, path for projects for everybody and super important um, for everyone. So I have another, uh, actually, sorry, do you want to comment there? Otherwise, I'll ask yeah, I, yeah, I, mean, I, I, have, I have another like topic in mind, but you know, you can start with yours first. Oh, well, this was a really good audience one. You got a lot of likes. Uh, and so I have to ask it, um, but with the lens of, you know, founding a centralized protocol versus a centralized company, what are you most and least jealous of the other person? I mean, it's really, it's really brilliant kind of what Vitalik did because of course he created a technology platform breakthrough that could be used by people all over the world. And so he's got like, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of companies and people like building on top of it. Um, and so, you know, he was able, like the, the pace of adoption globally of Ethereum was just so much faster than any one company could do because he's got 10,000 10, companies building on top of it, which is super cool and all the venture money flowing in. Um, and I don't, I don't know if this is an advantage or disadvantage. I just think, you know, Vitalik, you know, my, you're not, my understanding is you're not, you're not like have some typical CEO job or something like you're, you're doing like research and culture, community building and like you get to, um, really like read the research papers, meet with the community and help drive the, the technology forward. But like, frankly, uh, you know, building a, a company to the size of Coinbase and becoming a public company, there's, there's lots of parts about being a public company CEO that are not like building products for technology. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. So um, sometimes, I, you know, I get jealous of uh, how much time Vitaly gets to spend on like the actual tech itself. And what, what are you least jealous of? Um, well, that he got to have 10,000 companies build on top of his platform instead of being one company, I guess, yeah. Hmm. I think um, hmm, one of the uh, things that uh, I uh, kind of I'm starting to like miss um, as a result of the uh, Ethereum protocol just getting very big, and uh, that I think like Coinbase can you know still absolutely have if if it wants to is uh, that like once especially a uh, decentralized community gets big enough, like it's uh, 
becomes difficult to kind of have a, like as much you know, like alignment of values within that community, right? Like you basically start to have people who have kind of pretty much um, you know every opinion, um, and a lot of this is uh, good, um, but sometimes um, you know there are issues like it becomes uh, harder to kind of coordinate around you know, specific values around, um, you know, how we uh, respond to the privacy issue, for example, which, by the way, I think the Ethereum community has still does done an uh, excellent job of. Um, but, like, I do see the uh, kind of weaknesses of, um, you know, Ethereum as it is in 2022 versus, like, say, uh, Ethereum as it was in uh, 2015, um, or even, like, the uh, ability of uh, the, like, like Ethereum, it's harder for Ethereum as a community to pivot uh, than it is for Coinbase as uh, an organization to uh, pivot, for example. And I do think that um, you know we are in a yeah, kind of rapidly changing world and a rapidly changing century. And I think uh, you know the world still really needs um, like people and um, or and organizations that are like are in that position where like they have uh, very, very strong beliefs and um, you know they have uh, some kind of structure that's like really capable of like both executing on those beliefs and executing on kind of rapid cha uh, changes to the the world as um, as it exists and adapting to it and i think uh, you know the ability of like just like anything at higher levels of uh, the of the stack to do that, that anything uh, at the uh, uh, bottom levels of the stack, especially as it gets bigger, like that's definitely something that I miss. You know, it's funny, it kind of reminds me of uh, Brian's blog post around, uh, you know, the Coinbase culture. Uh, I think it came out a year and a half ago, was it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, I, I would say, I would say pivotal. It was met with a lot of uh, mixed reactions on, on both sides, but, you know, mm -hmm. what Trust was acquired uh, about a year and a half ago, um, you know, it really you know, kind of spoke to me the way that you talked about it. Um, so essentially, you can still do that when you're a large organization, but when you have such a, you know, massive ecosystem spanning the entire globe and so many different companies and people, it's, it's quite hard. Yeah, that's that's actually a better answer. Than, I, I got it backwards earlier with Lee. Vitalik, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, he's the leader of this movement that is very diverse and there's lots of different factions. And, you know, I'm sure he's getting pulled in a million different directions, whereas... And occasionally there's a fork of the chain, right? You know, in Coinbase with the mission-focused blog post, um, that was a bit of a fork in the chain, if you will, <laughs> of a private company. But, um, you know, it's different in a company context because we're, as CEO, you're basically saying this is the company and anybody else, you know, you can go start your own startup, I guess. That, that's kind of the equivalent of a fork in that world. But um, it's easier to have control over one company as opposed to a decentralized protocol. So Vitalik's got a harder job in that regard. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, at this point, that's it with the audience questions. Um, I'd love to pass the mic back over to you guys. One theme that I wanted to talk about is like the concept of like international um, inclusiveness and um, international diverse, uh, diversity, right? It's uh, something that's like been very important for, for me personally. And I think it's uh, something that the crypto space, especially historically, has been really specialized because it's uh, one of the few sp spaces that um, has uh, really done a very good job of uh, historically, right? And like, like things like being more inclusive is something that a lot of people value. But like, I personally find, like for example, that one of the uh, kind of weaknesses of this is that people 
tends to almost subconsciously think of it in the context of like just one country. Um, but um, you know, the reality is that uh, the uh, you know two thirds of um, income inequality is between countries, and uh, one th and one third is within a country. And like just the kinds of like differences in like you know thought and personality that we can benefit from, I think, are you know even greater once um, you know you you start. Um, and kind of bringing together groups of people that have like these very different, um, you know, just cultural and educational backgrounds that are only possible from, you know, if you're bringing together people from, uh, you know, very far away lands. And crypto has been like great at this, right? Because I remember uh, back in 2014 to 16, there was this really amazing dynamic where you had the Bitcoin community in China and the Bitcoin community in the United States. And um, the two even, did a good job of kind of being checks and balances to each other uh, during the uh, block size war and, and with um, you know the miners uh, doing a good job of like supporting one uh, one viewpoint um, and uh, kind of being a counterbalance at least for some time um, against uh, the uh, kind of mostly US based uh, core developers and you know you had different people come in with different mindsets different uh, kind of perspectives on uh, you know how to try to achieve um, things like privacy and things like uh, censorship resistance and you know these really beautiful communities where you had people from uh, China people from the US people from uh, you know like, uh, global south countries and they'd often just be part of the same project and uh, you know just talking with each other like they're part of the same community and it feels like over the last couple of uh, years this ethos is still there but it's kind of, it's in some ways at risk and one of the big reasons why it's at risk, I think, is, um, you know, of course, uh, like China was really big in the crypto community and uh, China has become less friendly to uh, crypto projects, right? And like, one of the dynamics that I remember, right, was like ICOs, right? And uh, I think there's a lot of criticisms about ICOs, but one of the things that's like really amazing and beautiful about ICOs is that ICOs uh, created an opportunity for people from by default from every country to come together and become part of the same project and like that is, is kind of creates the seed that allowed for these kind of cohesive like very cross-national communities to emerge um, and that's uh, you know so you had these big communities where you had lots of people from the US lots of people from China people from Southeast Asia and they're all part of one thing uh, but of course, uh, you know, ICOs have become legally much harder. And then like in China in general, a lot of crypto stuff became harder. And, the and you know, a lot of Bitcoin mining has moved to the US. And so I get this kind of concern that a lot of the crypto space is starting to drift toward like having this kind of much more of a US locus. And that, to me, like that's both, you know, concerning from a censorship resistance perspective. And it's also concerning from a uh, cultural perspective, because I do think that, you know, like people in New York have, like for example, you know, have a particular sort of New York vibe. Like a lot of like finance-centric focus, for example, um, a lot of uh, what outsiders might criticize as first-world problems. And like I find, you know, for, for example, our community in Argentina or Latin America in general, the kinds of things that they focus on to be a, a really refreshing a kind of contrast to that. Like you know, because here's like people who are very really suffering from inflation and from. Um, like international remittances not working and from financial systems not working uh, today and like for them it's like this very practical problem um, but at the same time it feels like this there's sort of center of gravity pushing toward large parts of crypto being uh, ba uh, based in one place so i wonder like what like what could coinbase uh, do uh, just to uh, turn this into a question to sort of keep this kind of you know internationalist as uh, spirit of uh, crypto alive is there something that we can try to do to sort of preserve the best parts of that more intentionally yeah great question um 
Well, so I agree with you. I think it's really important for everybody in crypto to have a more global mindset, right? I know you travel a lot, like you live in many different locations. Like I, I try to travel probably not as much as you, but I try to travel a lot. And I, I do think that, you know, Balaji Srinivasan has this great book that's out recently. Um, I'm only about halfway through it, but it's called The Network State. And he makes this case very eloquently that, you know, in the 1800s, people's primary identity was around what religion they were or what God they worshiped, right? And then in the 1900s, people's primary identity was around what country they were part of. And patriotism and, you know, Cold War and all this stuff. And, um, and he, he, his argument is kind of, if I can butcher it, is like, you know, in the, in the 2000s or the, you know, the, this century, it's going to be about what network you identify with. So not, not God to state to network. And we're in this hybrid transition right now between the network and the state, right? So Ethereum is one of those networks. Like Bitcoin is one of those networks. I could say, you could say crypto broadly is, is one of those networks, right? But there's other networks that people really identify with, whether it's like somebody who they follow on social media, or it's like some um, community like Y Combinator or whatever, right? So um, I think it's really important for people to sort of embrace that and like have that more, like you may have more in common with somebody you've never met in another country who also is into crypto than you do with somebody on the other side of your own town, right? Or on the other side of the country that, that you live in. So. Um, yeah, I think that that's a novel idea. Most people are still, most people in the world are still very much in the, um, country, you know, mindset. They filter everything that they think about is through the lens of their local politics of that geography where they happen to be located, but they're spending a greater and greater percentage of their life on the internet and, you know, VR and all these things are just going to accelerate that where it sort of almost doesn't matter what latitude and longitude you happen to be at. You're a citizen of the world, Right. I think, I think that's a very important mindset. Now, that being said, we need to make sure we create allies out of key countries around the world. Almost, you know, you almost want to shop them like vendors, like you choose between AWS or Google Cloud or something, right? And say, well, where are we going to put resources? Where, where, where are we going to invest to make sure that the, these networks do remain free and globally connected? Um, and, I, you know, the U.S. is obviously a huge bastion of strength there. I think just historically, culturally, it's been a big embracer of the Internet. Um, and free freedom and things like that. So it's probably going to be a big piece of the puzzle, but you don't ever want to over, you don't want, you don't want to ever have vendor lock in, right? You, all, you don't want to over rely on one particular spot. So yeah, I mean, I, I feel the same way. We need to make sure that there's investment in these other countries. So in terms of what can Coinbase do? I mean, one thing we, so we have, a, we have a big international focus right now. We have offices in like the UK and in Japan and Brazil and like we're, Australia, you know, will be out there soon. So we're launching more and more locations. Um, we also are really focused on things like Coinbase wallet, like self-custodial wallets can spread into countries much faster than regulated financial services. So Coinbase wallet is, is actually being used much more in like emerging markets. We want to make sure we get global coverage from, you know, both custodial and self-custodial. Um, just making sure the app is like well localized, you know, things like that, or there's a lot of technical challenges. Like in Venezuela, most people are running Android 4, which is from 2010 or something like that. And in the US, people are running Android 13 or something like that. So, you know, we have to make sure there is a version of our app that runs on Android 4 to, to be able to get even global coverage in some of these regions. So it's always a tension because, you know, a lot of the revenue is coming from like developed countries, but we want to make sure we're also investing in the longer term mission, which helps get a billion, two billion, you know, half the world into crypto. 
uh, with their internet connectivity. That's like one of the other big areas we can help out. Vitalik, what do you think will be the best form of money in the crypto economy? Because, you know, we have Bitcoin, which I think of as like, you know, the reserve currency. It's like kind of like gold, but it's deflationary. Um, we have stable coins, but they're pegged to the US dollar or another fiat. And they those are inflating, you know, eight or 9% this year. So is there room in the market for a, a flat coin or something pegged to CPI? Like, do you think crypto can create a better form of money? Yes, crypto, I think absolutely needs to at least prepare to uh, depeg from a uh, kind of over-reliance on any one particular uh, um, kind of asset. And uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons to do this, right? Like I think, um, you, know, you know, USDC is, uh, you know, a great uh, product and, you know, it's great that like uh, GRB, Lair and Co have uh, just like work hard on making something that's like so convenient and like actually usable. But at the same time, I um, mean, you know, there is this like systemic risk of uh, like if everyone is uh, using USDC, then uh, like what's uh, like does that mean that uh, you know USDC turns into like something that has a lot of political influence and you know controversial hard forks, uh, for example? Um, and um, you know even in general, like there's tail risks of um, like what happens if something um, happens to the uh, United States uh, or at least its dollar at some point uh, uh, down the line. There's uh, kind of uh, you know, regulatory issues like uh, you know, things that things that peg to U.S. dollars might end up being regulated like, in a way that's more similar to U.S. dollars at some point in the future. Uh, and so, I do think that there is a lot, like a lot of value, like both uh, in the near term and just in terms of like being prepared for edge cases and trying to figure out whether or not the uh, crypto space can have like some standard of uh, stability that's uh, kind of more connected to something like some kind of CPI uh, than it is to a, a specific fiat currency. Uh, I would say also um, that, you know, there's the opposite uh, viewpoint that's common among like, you know, Bitcoin maximalist types that say that we don't need that. And uh, once, uh, you know, Bitcoin takes over everything that Bitcoin is going to be stable. And, uh, you know, that's all we're going to need. And to me, that's always felt more like an article of faith than like a, uh, a kind of a sober assessment of like, well, what could actually happen, right? Because, uh, you know, in the past we had the gold standard and the gold and through the gold standard, uh, like we presided across both periods of stability and periods of uh, instability. Um, and in the 21st century, the economy moves quickly. A lot of uh, kind of cascading effects can happen more quickly. And that's, uh, you know, very possible that we might end up with uh, more instability. And then fixed supply cryptocurrencies are, of course, um, you know, even uh, like uh, even more kind of strict on the uh, supply, which implies, uh, you know, potentially even more, like, that any change in kind of demand for the currency would go entirely into changes in uh, demand uh, in a kind of price level. Uh, so it could end up being, uh, e being even more volatile. Uh, so I do think that there is value in having some kind of like crypto asset that is, uh, intentionally designed around being as stable as possible. Uh, but, and, you know, there are people trying to make experiments around this. I think there is uh, value in trying to uh, uh, do more experiments. And I mean, if you're someone like Rai, right, I think uh, Rai might actually even be in a good position to do this sort of thing, right? Because uh, the difference between Rai and something like Dai, for example, is that Dai has made this choice where they've decided that from a UX perspective, they want one unit of their assets to always equal $1. Uh, and they, like, this is clearly a kind of, you know, UX based decision, but it's a decision that has very high costs uh, because, uh, 
like basically if there is not enough demand for or if there's not enough supply of collateral to provide uh, uh, if there's not enough supply of uh, crypto collateral uh, to provide DAI at a zero interest rate, then like they have to pretty much choose between a negative interest rate and allowing centralized collateral. And DAI has chosen the uh, allow centralized collateral path. And like their theory is that, you know, oh, in the long term, they want to diversify and have do really sophisticated stuff. But like the reality in practice is that DAI is basically just a different kind of front end for USDC, which is uh, probably not a, a, a healthy place for something like DAI to be. And Rye, on the uh, on the other hand, like it's basically said, like yeah, you know, we're biting the bullet. Uh, we're going to be ETH collateralized only, and if that means negative, the market equilibrium interest rate is a negative interest rate, then it is what it is, right? And today, I think the uh, market equilibrium uh, interest rate for, or I guess interest rate is the wrong term. It's like the uh, the rate of adjustment of the target price in U.S. dollars of Rye is uh, something like I think about. Uh, I'm just uh, going to check uh, stats.reflexor.finance, uh, uh, minus 15.814%. Rai has already bitten the bullet on saying they're an approximately stable coin, but they're not trying going to try to like preserve this UX property of being exactly a dollar. And once they do that, I think it'll be a, it could be a very easy decision for Rai to just decide to stop following the dollar and start following some kind of uh, CPI instead. Now, what that CPI is going to be, I don't know. I mean, CPIs are kind of inherently political in some ways because like different products right. and different services, uh, you know, go up and down differently. And, uh, you know, inflation is like very heterogeneous in a lot of ways. I think over the last 30 years, like there are specific sectors, I know things like housing and education and stuff that's like either scarce or depends on human labor, that's gone up a huge amount, but stuff like clothing, like it's basically had no inflation at all. Um, I think like, like me, maybe even have decreased by a bit and like TVs have decreased by over 90%. So it is a, a bit of a political choice and you know which things you choose. And so making a good CPI basically means that, you know, either you're following the, 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 the BLS, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, um, or you're uh, actually coming up with your own CPI and then you have to it's kind of hard governance problem. But I mean, I think it's a, it's a governance problem worth trying. So I'm uh, really looking forward to seeing like what uh, these projects do and what comes out of that. How do you see the, uh, the the future of Coinbase as an organization? Like, what do you might you see it evolving into over the the next five or ten years, or you know, like, and how might how might that adapt in response to like different ways that the world and the crypto space might change? Hmm. Interesting question. Um, well, one one way that I see it evolving is that we really have um, a portfolio of different products now. So um, obviously, you know, we have a retail app, we have an institutional product, we have kind of more web three oriented stuff like Coinbase wallet and NFT and um, we're building things like Coinbase cloud. And so, you know, I, and it, over time I would expect there to be other things added in this portfolio. It could be from M and A or other things that we build in house. And I think that um, we want to basically empower the, the leaders of each of those products to start to operate a little bit more like their own startup, right? You want to give, have like, their own PL, like their own accountability and authority to make decisions. But we're still having some shared components. Like you want ideally those each of those products to be well integrated into a suite, right? So if you sign up for an Coinbase account, you can easily switch to any of those products after you've KYC'd and connected your payment methods and stuff. Um, so it looks longer term, I think it could look a little bit like you know, these holding companies like Alphabet, right? Or or Meta, and like they end up having these like portfolios of different products under them with really rigorous capital allocation. So that's one thing. Um, one other idea I've just thought about is that 
I think, you know, Coinbase is all about economic freedom and like how might we over the long term just try to increase all types of freedom. So, you know, you could imagine a, a freedom stack, right? That's helping you um, across various layers of, you know, censorship. Um, there's everything from like the, the, the ISPs and the cell towers, like, you know, down to the actual hardware that you have to use, like these things can all be co-opted. And so um, it'd be interesting to build like a broader company around like a freedom stack, but um, obviously that's like a much longer term thing with lots of capital involved. So we'll see. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's one way to do it. The other way to do it, I think it would also be for the crypto space itself to like invest more in uh, existing projects that are trying to kind of build these freedom stacks, right? There's uh, great companies that are trying to build like more open phones and more open laptops and uh, you know, more open VRs and uh, uh, all of these things. And I think uh, actually it's uh, a bit of an uh, kind of, under uh, discussed and under kind of used opportunity to try to sort of build more bridges between the yeah, crypto community and that kind of more tr uh, kind of older and uh, sort of pre-blockchain rooted uh, community that cares about openness and decentralization. So Vitalik, I guess I'll, I'll turn it back on you. So if you look out five or 10 years um, for you personally, like what do you envision? How, how do you think you might spend your time? Like what kind of things might you be passionate? Like what do you want to see happen in the world and what do you think you'll I don't know if you'll have like you know a pet cat or like you'll wake where will you wake up in the world what will you work about work on what will you think about all kinds of things I kind of foreshadowed my answer in my uh, earlier answer where I yeah, kind of talk about the need to be intentional about things other than just crypto um, like I mean I've obviously been you know following and kind of supportive of the yeah, longevity space um, of uh, and of some of the yeah, effective altruist movements um, of some of the kind of innovative governance stuff and you know charter, charter cities people and so forth um, I think uh, there's definitely some opportunity for I mean both myself and I think I, I would even say you too and I would say like and, and, and all of us in the yeah, crypto space to um, start being more active in sort of charting, um, you know, what a yeah, vision of a more free, open, and uh, inclusive uh, future for the entire world that like combines those different ingredients would look like. Uh, I mean, so far, it's uh, like, you know, early stage thoughts, uh, but, I, you know, in general, I think over the next few years, we can start uh, kind of narrowing down much more into the, yes, uh, into the specifics and, uh, you know, start, uh, as you said, kind of building out or at least kind of supporting the building out of the full stack more. It's funny. I feel like a lot of crypto people are, we're trending towards like, uh, how do we create a positive singularity? <laughs> you know, like the further things go along. And so, yeah, that's great. We have a global decentralized money. How do we get um, longevity, scientific research, like accelerate the pace of AI, all these things. So um, nuclear fusion, you know, the VR, like climate, like carbon sequestration. I mean, to me, I've, technology is the most important lever that we have to improve the world. So um, anyway, I, I get very pumped up about that. It seems like a lot of people in crypto are as well. All right, Victor, I'll turn it back to you. Amazing. Thank you. Um, this was this is awesome. Um, my final question to you guys is, you know, we covered so many important topics. Um, but if you were, you know, standing on a rooftop right now and you had the entire, you know, crypto community in front of you, um, you know, what's one thing that you would literally and metaphorically shout from the rooftop? Like, what is something you'd love to lo leave our listeners with? Let's all work together. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Like, there's too many, like, little tribal things happening in crypto. I mean, I think if you talk to Vitalik and I, like, we love Bitcoin. 
you know, we hold a lot of Bitcoin. Like we, I don't want to speak for you. I, I don't know. I do. Um, you know, and there's, it's not just Bitcoin. There's like, there's a, there's Solana, there's a million like apps and tokens and things out there. And like, basically sometimes people get too inwardly focused about like, which one's better and flame wars. But the whole point of this is like, let's just get like a, a couple billion people in the world using crypto every day broadly. I don't even care which one it is. Like we're supportive of all this stuff. So, um, you know, and it's, it's not even about like competition between different crypto companies that much. It's like, how do we grow the size of the pie a hundred X? Um, that's, that's at least my view. So, um, there's a lot of collaboration also. I think it's basically, you just have to kind of ignore a lot of the, like, there's, a, there's a bunch of like chatter on social media and stuff that can be very distracting. And that's the other question I was going to ask you, Vitalik, if we had time was like, how do you deal with all the haters? But I think just don't read the comments and keep building good stuff. But I don't know, Vitalik, what do you, what, what would be your message to the crypto community? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, as I've uh, said again a bit, a, a bit earlier here, if you want to see, a, if, if you believe in crypto because you want crypto to uh, bring about some particular thing, then, uh, you know, go build the thing. That's, uh, you know, we need to, I think, a bit uh, to have a bit more of that lovely, juicy, uh, de definite optimism in our crypto world. And I think uh, if uh, more people did that, uh, that uh, would even help uh, bring more positivity into the space, right? I think... Uh, when uh, people are in builder mindset, people are just naturally much more uh, cooperative than uh, when when people are in a kind of zero sum political warfare mindset. Um, and the more that we can uh, kind of do things to you know pull ourselves out of the patterns that lead to uh, kind of people being stuck defending specific positions that they've chosen years ago and just uh, yelling insults at each other on Twitter and uh, move toward like using uh, debate as an actual tool to you know figure out uh, what the right answers actually are and, uh, and w with an eye to actually starting to build toward them, uh, then I think we can, uh, you know, come up with and uh, help uh, build a much better crypto space. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And I think that, um, you know, one of the really inspiring things is that both of you embody these values so well and, you know, it enable you to last, you know, 10 plus years in industry and it's going to enable you to continue building and, collaborating and continuing to create the future that we want to see for the next 20, 30 years. Um, I just want to say thank you guys, you know, both of you for, for everything you've done for the space and, um, you know, for Ethereum, for the, eco, for the broader crypto ecosystem. Um, and I want to thank both of you for taking the time to come on this podcast and chat. Um, I had a wonderful time. And uh, with that, thanks so much for coming and have a good day. Thanks for taking us too. Yeah. See y'all soon. Today's conversation is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal or investment advice. Actual results may vary materially from any forward-looking statements made and are subject to risks and uncertainties.